Well, this morning we continue our way through the challenging book of Lamentations. And today come to the center of the book, the third of five poems, five consecutive acrostic poems, poems that each verse, each stanza of the poem uh, begins with the letter of uh, the, the, the next letter of the alphabet. And while all the other poems, each verse begins with a new letter, in chapter 3, the middle of the book, uh, it's a triple acrostic. So the first three verses begin with the A, if you will, and the next three verses begin with B and so forth down the line. So it's it's tripled up um, and, of course, uh, uh, causes us to linger and to give a little more attention uh, to the text as it's as it's longer, it's three times length. Every every one of the other chapters is twenty two, and this is sixty six verses. And we get something, of course, very beautiful uh, within this text, because thus far to this point in chapters one and two of Lamentations, uh, as you will remember, it's a it's been a dark ride. <laughs> it's been it's been um, Truly, two chapters of outright lament and crying out to the Lord about the utter destruction that is coming upon Israel, well, particularly upon Judah, in the destruction of Jerusalem. Horrible things, as we, as we thought about last week. But it's also important for us to remember, and remember is a key word within our text today. It's, it's, it may be the word uh, that changes, at least within this poem, the background music of the poem. If we can think in terms of background music, like thinking of a movie, and the background music that's setting the tone of the thing, gives you a sense of whether you should be scared or whether you should be excited. Uh, if we can think what the background music of, the, of, the, of this poem, of the first two poems has been, it, it, it might be very heavy. But in chapter three, there is a turning we move, if you will, from a minor key to a major key. Um, there's, a, there's a brightening, and, and the key word may be remember. Maybe remember. And it's important for us to remember the context of this book. That while we're reading about the judgments of God, and that's what this is about. This is not about just providential human suffering. Though, though providential human suffering, of course, plays into that. There's no doubt about that. There's an, there's an analogous point we can make about that, but that's not what this is about. This is not a book about providential suffering. This is a book about the wrath of God being poured out on the sins of his people. This book is a book about the judgment of God coming, a judgment that was promised by God through the mouths and the pens of his prophets for many generations. And now the judgment has come. And don't forget that this southern kingdom of Judah, I mean, nobody has any excuse, but they certainly have no excuse, for they have watched the northern kingdom of Israel already be dragged away by the Assyrians. So they have seen the Lord, if you will, keep his prophetic word and bring that kind of judgment. And yet, and yet, they persisted in their idolatry. They persisted in stuffing, if you will, wax 
in their ears, cotton balls in their ears, and not listening to the words of the prophets. And they continued down the road. And now, and now, in Lamentations, the judgment has come, and the prophet, the poet, is obviously grieving it. Well, this brings us to chapter 3, the center point of our poem. And within poetry, as in just good literature all around, the center of the text is not insignificant real estate. Right? Look, if, if, you, if, you, you know, if we're trying to understand the meaning of a poem or the meaning of a story, a, good, a well-written story, as you're reading, look for that center point. And, and many times you will find there uh, the essence, the heart of the thing that the poet wants you to hear. That in some sense, everything's funneling down to that, to that point. And so here we come to the center in the chapter, but also we'll get here to the center of the center there in the, in the middle part of this chapter. Well, the, the poem begins the way that the others, um, we're, we're tracking here. We, we can almost anticipate what we're about to read as we enter chapter three, more, uh, uh, I don't want to say bemoaning because uh, he's actually going to tell us not to do that. So I don't, th what's the word that I want to say here? A, a description of, a crying out about the affliction that has come upon Judah. The little difference in chapter three is the poet goes to first person singular. I, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. So he, the poet now, takes the, uh, identifies with Judah in a very unique and personal way. And in speaking about what he has seen and what has happened to him, um, he is, he's speaking about what's happened to him, but through him, of course, to the kingdom that he loves and that he represents in his prophecy. And once again, I mean, it's hard to hear, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's very uncomfortable <laughs> to read these words and remember the personal pronouns, as I made the point last week. The, the, the personal pronoun, who is doing these things to him? Not they, right? Not the Babylonians. He repetitively makes the point, he, 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 he did this to him. That is, God has brought this judgment, and it is tough to read. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh, broken my bones, besieged me, surrounded me with bitterness and woe, set me in dark places, hedged me in so I can't go out. He has made my chains heavy. He shuts out my prayer. He won't listen to me. He's blocked my ways. He's made my paths crooked. I mean, think about, think about in some ways the undoing in this text of all the things that elsewhere we're told God does do for us. He makes our paths straight. He leads us out of darkness into light. As, uh, as one preacher said, it's like, this is like the anti-Psalm 23, you know? Whereas in Psalm 23, the, 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 our God who is a good shepherd leads us into green pastures and besides still waters, 
who walks with us through, through the valley of the shadow of death. Here, here he's saying, no, he doesn't walk with us through anything. He's, he's hemmed us in. He, not the Babylonians have besieged us. God has besieged me. He has walled me in and placed me in darkness. In verse 10, he's a bear. He's like a lion. I mean, in, in Psalm 23, he's the good shepherd who, who protects us. In this poem, he is the wild beast who ravages us, who tears us to pieces. He's like a lion in ambush. He's turned aside my ways, torn me into pieces, made me desolate. He's hunted me down. He bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow. His arrow pierced my loins, pierced my kidneys, making me the ridicule of everyone. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink toxins. I mean, verse 16, he's broken my teeth with gravel. He's just, he's just, he's just mashed me down into the gravel and broken my teeth, covered me with ashes. By the time we get to 17 and 18, after now two chapters of this, now two and a half, two and a third chapters of this, the prophet, the poet, is cooked. He's, he's spent. Right? He has poured out his tears and there's nothing left to cry. He's exhausted in his lamenting. And he says, you have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. I don't even, that's not, the idea of peace and safety and prosperity is just not even on my radar anymore. That, that's how desolate I am. I've forgotten prosperity. And I have said my strength and my hope, they're gone. They've perished. I don't even know what hope is anymore. I don't know what strength is anymore. I'm completely cooked. So we're, we're here down. We have, we have made a spiraling descent of lament. Now, it's important, again, it's important for us to remember here that what, what we're seeing happen, what is this? This is the judgment of a holy God against sin. What you have here is a middle point, if you will, within the grand narrative arc. And we've been making this point, but let me remind you. We mentioned that what we're seeing here is a growth. Remember we said it's like taking the swab at the Garden of Eden, a swab of sin, putting it in the Petri dish and letting it grow in the lab and we get to see what the sin of Eden was. But we also get to see what the judgment of God was. You know, in, in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, okay, the sin looked mild. It looked like the picking of a fruit. It won't be until Golgotha that we see what that really was we, as, as it grows in the, in the laboratory of Israel's history. But also the judgment of God seemed pretty mild, right? I mean, okay, sure, sure. We can, we can explain the significance of it, but basically they were pushed out of the garden. Said, all right, go. But what you see in Eden, you see manifested and blown up, if you will, in Israel, as now she is about to be kicked out from the land, 
because of her sin. Now, the sin looks more obvious by the time we get to Israel because it's not one plucking of a fruit. Now it is repetitive, repetitive, repetitive idolatry, or as R.C. calls it, cosmic treason, right? So that's what the picking of the apple was. You just might not have seen it, but now it's hard not to see within the history of Israel because, man, they've killed the prophets, Right, they, they, they have, I mean, the whole story with Elijah, I mean, they are holding big contests to show how Baal is the chief God. I mean, that's how bad it got within, within the, the people, God's people. Okay, so we are seeing the sins hard not to see now. And now they, like Adam, are going to be exiled from the land. They're going to be put out of the garden. And it's going to look more dramatic as well. We're going to see the judgment. We're seeing the judgment and wrath of God more clearly. But let's remember that this story is not the end of the story. This is the story in the middle of the story. This isn't the full expression either. Just like you couldn't see it all in the Garden of Eden, even in this, and let me tell you, read it again. If you're looking for an uncomfortable read this afternoon, read it again and listen to the, listen to the prophet saying, God smashed my teeth out with gravel. He mashed my face into the gravel and broke my teeth out. I mean, it's just so uncomfortable to hear. But I'm telling you, even this is a pale, a pale picture of the judgment and wrath of God. This is the picture in the middle of the story. This is not the end of the story. The, 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 the growth in the laboratory, in the little Petri dish, is growing, no doubt. You can see it more clearly maybe than you saw it in the Garden of Eden. But let me tell you what, it gets a whole lot clearer. By the time we get to Golgotha, okay, because at Golgotha we have a man who says, I am the man. Who knows affliction? I've become the laughing stock of my people. My teeth have been broken out. By, right? We have an actual man in Jesus Christ who bears this. But even, even, the, even the affliction that he has to deal with and the, the, the breaking of his back with rods and whips and a crown of thorns and the mocking and scourging of his people, even that, as bad as that was, you know, you watch... You, you, you hear scenes about it, or sometimes you listen to pastors preach on the crucifixion. And, and you go on about how bad crucifixion is and how bad the beatings were, and there's no doubt they were. But again, I go back to, to uh, R.C. Sproul, you know, when he said, but those were like, those were like little gnat bites to Jesus. That, Jesus was not sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew he was going to be beaten by the Romans. He's not sweating drops of blood because he knew they're going to make fun of him or they're going to rip out his beard or spit on him. That's all horrible. It's horrible. It's Lamentations 3 horrible. And that's bad. But that's not what was making Jesus sweat drops of blood. What's making Jesus sweat drops of blood is what this judgment is a mild picture of. Namely, the full, unmitigated wrath of God. So, like, my, my point is, if breaking our teeth with gravel is shocking and, and offensive and off-putting, well, I, I really hate to break this to you, 
you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. I mean, go read the read the end of the book of Revelation, which is a vision, uh, again, a vision of, like, here, let me give you some pictures that might give you a sense of what's going to happen, you know, and and here comes the one riding on the white horse with the 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 sword out of his mouth, just laying waste to his enemies, and the the you know, and 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 pressing the wine press of his wrath. And I mean, it's tough. So it's important to remember not to get sentimental about, oh my goodness, how could God break their teeth? But to remember what this is a picture of. It is a picture, a poetic picture of the real wrath of God that all humanity, not just Israel, Israel's a representative, just like Adam was a representative of humanity, Israel's a representative of humanity. This is what all of us deserve. You think the Babylonians don't deserve this? The Canaanites? The Americans? We all deserve this. So, we have to grapple with what our sins deserve and what God's judgment is. This is not in vogue to talk about. We don't like talking about judgment. We don't like talking about a holy God. We don't like talking about an angry God. But Lamentations gives us no choice. <laughs> it's like, how else do we describe him with regards to our sin? Okay, so we're on this spiraling descent of lament and then we come really in a an unexpected turn frankly because we've just read two and a half poems of despair and lament and grief so that now tears have dried up i can't even remember prosperity i don't even know i don't hope for it anymore because it's not even a thing i can imagine and then we come to this, this beautiful passage stuck in the middle of such a dark book. And again, the background music changes, I think, with the word remember. Remember. And I'm not sure who he's talking to here. He could be talking to his own soul. He could be talking to the reader. He could be talking to God. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. Gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Now, I, I just, I want to pause here because I go back to what we were talking about at our table talk the other night. Right? We're t we're, we're, we had dinner together, a great time hanging out with one another talking about a dark subject because we spent the whole time talking about original sin and sin in the fall and all these dark things, heavy things. But we made the point that evening that talking about these heavy things, these uncomfortable things, is so important because if we don't think about those things, we won't think about the gospel either. It's not like, well, we don't want to talk about sin, we just want to talk about Jesus. No, if you don't talk about sin, you will end up not talking about Jesus. Or Jesus just becomes a self-help guru who gives us tips for better living. If you really want to talk about Jesus, if you want to have a Christ-centered theology, if we want to be a Christ-centered church, then we must talk about sin. We must talk about judgment. Because that judgment, that sin, 
is the backdrop against which the glory of Christ pops and explodes. So, so the poet here says, I remember. And really, he's done two and a half poems of remembering. Why those two and a half poems? Here, I think he's telling us, I do this because I must remember. We must reflect on this. We must remember. We must preach through lamentations. And we must remember the affliction, the roaming, the wormwood, the gall, the sinking, the lack of hope, the darkness, the judgment. So that, verse 20, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Now he just said, I have no hope. My hope is perished. But where there is hope, it's almost like you got to remember that you have no hope in order to find hope. It's counterintuitive. But you must be, you must be brought to the place where you despair of hope to find genuine hope. Anything else, any sort of con con convincing yourself that there's hope in anything else, like maybe you can work your way out of this. Maybe, and I don't know if you're like me, that's how I always think. I always think, all right, I'll find a way out. I'll, I'll figure a way through this. If, if any glimmer of that will leave you utterly hopeless, it is only when you, remembering the wormwood in the gall, come to the place where you realize, all right, my hope is dead. Aha. Now you can have hope. And he does. Therefore, I have hope. And then in after two and a half, two and a third poems of utter despair, he just gives us some of the most beautiful poetry, the most encouraging poetry, poetry that we've written hymns on. Verse 22, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. He just gave us two and a half poems of how we are utterly consumed. The Lord is a lion ravaging us. He's a bear tearing us to pieces. And then he says, through the Lord's mercies? Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So the poet is brought to this place of utter despair where he literally has nothing to hope in and there finds a solid rock on which to stand. And that rock is the mercy the compassion, the character of God, the faithfulness of God, even in and through His judgment. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. Now, the word portion to, to, the, to the poet would mean my inheritance, what's coming to me. Which, if you would have asked most of the Jews and Jewish leaders at the time, what is the portion of Israel, they would, they would say the land. like that, That's our portion. That's the inheritance the Lord has given to us. But that's gone. That's gone. Everything's gone. Literally, everything has been stripped from them. They are being dragged out as slaves. If they survive the siege, they're being dragged out as slaves and scattered over the Babylonian. They have literally lost everything. But notice... The, the poet comes to the conclusion that in losing everything, I realize what is my true portion. It's actually none of those things. It's not even this life. 
And this is where he finds hope. It, my hope is not in any of these things. Not even in his teeth, which are laying in a pile of gravel there. That's hard to imagine. But what he finds is that his hope, his portion, is the Lord. And the Lord is reliable and faithful and merciful. And so he now takes this reality and turns to us, the reader and his listeners, and reminds us what we ought to do with this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. So, so what are we, he, he turns, he's still, he's still, you still, he's still lost in reflecting upon the character of God. Down in his, down in the bottom, he has, he looks up in there and he sees God and he's describing it, but now he's reflecting to us all. What do we do with this? The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good. Think about this. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. I mean, the yoke in, 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 in this is an image of slavery. Judgment, the weight, the burden. And he, he's even saying, it's good for us to go through this. It's good for us to bear through the judgment of God silently. It is good for us to be stripped down to nothing that we might find our hope in him. Verse 28, let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. God has laid this judgment on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Let us, let us put our faces. We don't need God to put our faces in the gravel. Let each man put his face in the dirt. This image of repenting, this image of lowering ourselves and humbling ourselves before God. What? There may yet be hope. Again, just like the, just like the poet himself has done. He has put his face in the, he has, he has had to grapple with all this and in remembering it and calling it back to his mind, he finds hope in the despair of hope. And so he's calling us to do the same. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid this yoke on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. And now here in verses 31 and 33, we get to the center of the center. So here's the center of the poem that's at the center of the book. Four. The Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. That doesn't mean he's being forced to do it by some outer compulsion. It just means his heart's desire is not to crush you. That's not what he's aiming at here, church. That's not what he's, his will is. His will is to extend mercy. His will, he strikes, if you will, to heal. Like the friend in the book of Proverbs. Right? The striking of a friend is, for, is, is a good thing. It's a healing thing. The hard word of a friend. The Lord does not cast off forever. So here, the, this, this spiraling down of Lamentations 2 
two and a, and, a, and a third, a little bit more of the book brings us to this point. The Lord will not cast off forever. Boy, it sure as heck seemed like he might have in the first couple chapters, but here he comes to the place, no, he will not. The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, he does not undo the things he said. The he, 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 him, his of the first two and a half chapters he holds to. He causes the grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Even the striking is the tender rod of the shepherd. Even this harsh judgment is the mercy of God. Now again, I, I, I think it's important for us to understand here that this is a picture of Eden and it is a picture of Golgotha. Right? In some sense, brothers and sisters, you and I do not experience the fullness and the weight of this because Jesus has experienced it. Yes, we have to live in an age of curse. There's no doubt about that. But what, what this, what, the reason we're preaching through Lamentations right now is because we're doing it in Lent to prepare us for Holy Week, to prepare us to celebrate what you're going to see in Holy Week. And you know what you're going to see in Holy Week? This. This. And you're going to see another descent into the grave with Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son of God, will take the position of the poet in Lamentations. He will speak the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22. And in just utter, mind-blowing lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into the grave he will go. And yet, the Lord does not cast off forever. Three days later, by the mercy of God, he is elevated, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, seated at his right hand, and made an heir of all the nations. And you and I with him. You and I with him. So what do we take from this then? Well, again, I think we, we need to take away the, the picture of the holiness of God and the judgment of God. We must allow, we must remember, as the poet says, or else if we don't remember, our hope will be fleeting. But if we can remember the holiness of God, if we can remember the wormwood in the gall, if we can really linger, not don't, don't turn your gaze away quickly from the horrid realities of the judgment of God against the sin of man, then we too will be elevated. We, we, will, we will delight and rejoice in the goodness of God. Verse 40 and 41. Because now, on the other side of that turning point of the poem, he now launches in and maybe deals with a couple... It, it's, it's too much to preach on 66 verses, but he, he now turns and he answers maybe some, some accusations from his listeners. Maybe God's not just in doing this. And and he, he argues it is just. And, you know, maybe God's not sovereign. He says, no, 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 no one else but the hand of... This does not happen apart from the hand of God. This is this has, in some sense, nothing to do with the Babylonians. But he tells his readers in verses 40 and 41, 
let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. We have transgressed and rebelled. So let us turn our ways. Let us get our face in the dust. And this is what, again, I think is so appropriate for us in the season of Lent. The reason Ash Wednesday is called Ash Wednesday, and we don't necessarily you know, put ashes on our heads, but the reason the church has historically done it, in some senses for that, right? you put your face in the ashes. You, know, you put your face in the dirt. You repent. You acknowledge your sins. And then the, the poet goes on and he he recounts again the the again. Now we're back. This is how poetry works, right? It's it's not it's, it's not always linear, you know. It 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 brings us down to the despair, and then we have this beautiful turning point, and then on the other side of it, we're back to the despair. We're talking about it again, but now we're talking about it this time in light of what has just been said. And so in verses 42 to 54, we get more. I'm cut off, I'm down in the bottom, I've been thrown into the pit. Verse 52, my enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit. They threw stones at me. Now notice here though, now it's not he did this, he did this, he did this. Now he is talking about the enemies. Now his attention, because he doesn't, now he sees what God is doing from the hand of God. There is mercy, but nonetheless, there are these Babylonian enemies that are doing this to me. And he's going to ask the Lord to avenge them. And the Lord will. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. Water flowed over my head. I said I'm cut off. But notice again the, the this tone to the poem that was not there in the beginning. In verse 55, And I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit, and you have heard my voice. Again, just a different background music here. It's, it's still, this is tough stuff. But now there's this confidence in the Lord that the poet has. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit, and you've heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from me, from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called to you, and you said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wrong. <laughs> Judge my case. So now, now the Lord has, if you will, in, from, the, from the poet's eye, the Lord was sitting across the table from me, Right, bringing the judgment, but now the, the, the Lord has swung around and he's on my side of the table in the, in the case. He's, he's now an advocate to me, not an adversary to me. And that, that's the poet's realization, but he had to be brought down to the bottom to see God, even what felt like adversarial, to see it really as a counselor, an advocate. And again, we know, we, how, how in the world can any of this be advocacy? And we know that the answer, the, the, the clarity on the answer to this, the, the, how you resolve, uh, bring resolution to these two things that are so off-putting. He's a bear and a lion who's ravaging and tearing to pieces, yet somehow he's my advocate? That does not get fully resolved until Golgotha. Where at the same time, 
He is ravaging like a lion and a bear in holy judgment and at the same time advocating for me on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's, it's, it's not until there that we can fully appreciate this, but, but you and I have eyes to see it. I pray. And we can rejoice in the fact that, Lord, I, there's no reason for you to have heard my prayers. But you have. And so the prayer comes at the end. A, a, a prayer that only is issued from that place of advocacy, seeing the Lord on your side of the table, if you will. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work on their, of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them in your anger. Pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Lord, again, these who are ravaging your church, even though it was by your will, uh, for my good, nonetheless, Lord, defend us. And of course, he will and he does. And that, again, that prayer as well gets answered at Golgotha on the cross. So here we've, we've crossed over the, the, the borderline of the midway of the poem, and now we have some exhortation, and I want to charge you in this season of Lent to remember. Remember. Remember the wormwood and the gall. Remember that apart from Christ, there is no hope. Not some hope, not a little hope, not you've got to try to find some hope. There is no hope. And don't be afraid of that because it's only then that you truly find hope. And the hope you find on the other side of that despair is hope that can turn dark things into light. That can cause you to say things like, take the yoke, it's good for a man to take the yoke, all this horrible stuff he just described. Because you've just gotten new eyes. So, brothers and sisters, remember the wormwood and the gall. And through that, find hope. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we do not have a good understanding of your holiness. We think you to be tame. We think you to operate within the boundaries that we set up for what's appropriate for a God to do. And Lord, we confess that we do not know our sin. We think ourselves to be decent people. There may be some bad people out there, but we're decent. That's how we think of ourselves. Even when we try to confess our sins, this is how we think of ourselves. It is so hard to convince ourselves how bad and awful our idolatry and our sin is. Israel's looks bad. So, Father, we confess this to you today. Use the book of Lamentations to be smelling salts under us, to do for us what Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter, to be sober-minded, that we might truly, in the despair, find hope and life and the advocacy and the mercies that are new every morning from you, Lord God. Be with us by your Spirit, for we need your Spirit to this end, for we confess our own weakness. Lord, we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was ravaged by the lion and the bear, that he 
God of God might be an advocate for us and grant us the gift and mercy of salvation. We give you thanks in His name. Amen.